You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. Our show features our team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. And they'll help you make the most of your money while cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. You'll get clarity on strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Hey everyone, welcome to episode number 401 of our Civil War podcast. My name is Rich. And I'm Tracy. Hello y'all. Thanks for tuning in to the podcast. As y'all will recall at the end of the last episode, it was mid-afternoon on Saturday, September 19th, 1863, the second day of the Battle of Chickamauga, and the fighting had all but ceased on the northern part of the battlefield. Meanwhile, south of Brockfield, Six Confederate brigades, comprising Hood's Corps, were, at 2 p.m., still massed in the woods, awaiting orders. As we'll see, about half-past two, the 2,500 Federals of Brigadier General Jefferson C. Davis's division of McCook's 20th Corps entered the woods near the Vineyard House and collided with some of Hood's troops from Brigadier General John Gregg's and Colonel John Fulton's brigades. Gregg's and Fulton's brigades comprised the front line of Bushrod Johnson's division. As we'll see shortly after the contact with Davis's Yankees, Hood will order Johnson's division forward in a general attack, supported by Brigadier General Evander Law's division to their rear. Whether by accident or design, those 7,000 Confederates were aimed primarily at the gap that still existed in the Federal Army's line between Brotherton Field to the north and Vineyard Field here to the south. For his part, William Rosecrans was acutely aware of that gap in the Army of the Cumberland's line and had been trying to fill it for much of the day. It's at Rosecrans' direction that Davis's division of Federals will be sent forward into the woods where they'll collide with Hood's rebels. Davis's 2,500 troops were too few to fill the gap in Rosecrans' lines, but more Federals were on the way. Division Commander Horatio Van Cleve's last brigade, led by Colonel Sidney Barnes, was halted just south of the vineyard farm. Barnes had lost touch with Van Cleve, but happened to be in position to support Davis. The 21st Corps Division, commanded by Brigadier General Thomas Wood, was also on the way, ordered forward by Crittenden to join the fight. So, all of that's to say that, as we'll see in this episode, with a lull having settled over the northern end of the battlefield, the fighting will shift south, with all of these units we just talked about, Federal and Confederate, 
about to collide that afternoon in and around the vineyard farm. Jefferson C. Davis's division from Alexander McCook's 20th Corps arrived near the Widow Glen's cabin as the fighting swelled to the north around Brock Field, which we covered in the last episode. That morning, Davis's men were camped down at Pond Spring when they received orders from McCook to march north and report to either Rosecrans or George Thomas. A dusty morning march carried Davis's division to the Widow Glen's where Rosecrans had recently established his headquarters. Eliza Glenn's husband had died in Confederate service a few months before. Her Spartan cabin was located on a fairly imposing rise of ground that looked out over a wide field, rolling down to the east all the way to the Lafayette Road. It also marked the spot where the little country lane known as the Glen Kelly Road branched off from the Dry Valley Road and angled northeastward to join the Lafayette Road near Thomas's position. It was perhaps as good a site as any for old Rosie's headquarters, though he was nevertheless reduced to trying to follow the course of the battle by judging the distance and direction of the sound the fighting generated. Charles Dana, a noted journalist who had been appointed Assistant Secretary of War, had accompanied Rosecrans to the Widow Glens when Army Headquarters was shifted there earlier in the day. Dana wrote later, quote, Although closer to the battle, we could see no more of it here than before, the conflict being fought altogether in thick forest and being invisible to outsiders. The nature of the firing and the reports from the commanders alone enabled us to follow its progress. It was sometime around noon when Rosecrans ordered Davis, quote, to move forward as speedily as possible in the direction of the heaviest firing and to make an attack with a view, if possible, to turn the enemy's left flank, end quote. In other words, Rosecrans thought that by sending Davis's troops into the woods east of the Lafayette Road, they might possibly be in a position to turn the left flank of the Confederates fighting up around Brock Field. Jefferson Davis's name might ring a bell for some of you, and not just because as a federal officer he shared a name with the Confederate president, but also because of Davis's shooting and killing of fellow Union General Bull Nelson in Louisville, Kentucky, the previous year. Davis was placed under military arrest for the murder of Nelson, but probably through the influence of Indiana Governor Oliver Morton, he never faced a court-martial, and following the incident, Davis returned to command of his division. Here at Chickamauga on the morning of the 19th, Brigadier General William Carlin's brigade had led Davis's division on the march up the Lafayette Road. Captain William Patterson of the 38th Illinois was impressed by the noise of battle as they drew closer to the action. He said, quote, The firing seemed to increase and become terrific. Volley after volley, broken by continual and incessant peals of artillery, resounded through the woods and over the fields. Carlin's men had quick-timed about three miles up the Lafayette Road to reach the vineyard field near the Widow Glen's cabin. So while they caught their breath, Colonel Hans Hegg took the lead in deploying his brigade, 
facing the woods and centered on a small structure known later as the Log School. Hegg's four regiments were a mixed bag of Midwesterners, the 8th Kansas, 15th Wisconsin, and 25th and 35th Illinois. The Kansans were the only representatives of their state serving in the Army of the Cumberland, and the Badgers from Wisconsin enjoyed the distinction of being the only Norwegian regiment in federal service. Well, the majority of its members were immigrants from Norway, with the rest being fellow Scandinavians from Sweden and Denmark. The 33-year-old Haig had raised and led the 15th Wisconsin until recently, when he was elevated to brigade command. Now, when Haig's 1,200 men reached a spot just north of the vineyard field, he faced them east with, as I said a moment ago, his line centered on the log school. Haig departed from standard tactics by leaving only one regiment, the 25th Illinois, in the second line. His front line was made up of the 8th Kansas in the center, the 35th Illinois on the left, and the 15th Wisconsin on the right. Meanwhile, Carlin moved his brigade into position on Haig's right, deploying his regiments facing the open expanse of Vineyard Field. His front line from left to right consisted of the 38th Illinois, 101st Ohio, and 81st Indiana. Like Haig, Carlin's second line consisted of just one regiment, the 21st Illinois. With an eye to supporting the infantry's advance, Carlin positioned the guns of the 2nd Minnesota Battery on the right, across the road in the southern end of the field. Davis was a competent officer, but could be a bit of a meddler, and now he proceeded to interfere in Carlin's deployment. Davis moved the 81st Indiana south to support the guns of the 2nd Minnesota Battery, and then took the 21st Illinois to act as a divisional reserve. That left Carlin with only two regiments, a situation with which he was not happy. For Hegg's part, he wasn't waiting for Carlin and Davis to finish deploying. After forming his lines, Hegg plunged into the timber and scrub oak thickets east of the Lafayette Road, where visibility was less than 20 yards. In a matter of moments, the Federals walked smack into a rebel skirmish line. Lieutenant Colonel Ole Johnson, in command of the 15th Wisconsin, said that in the dense woods here, quote, we could but imperfectly see the enemy, end quote. Quickly overcoming their surprise, Haig's men drove back the Confederate skirmishers and pressed on rapidly eastward. The advance by Haig's brigade ground to a sudden halt a few hundred yards into the woods when the Yankees ran into the enemy in the form of Bushrod Johnson's main divisional line. Despite the retreat of their skirmish line, most of the Confederates were as surprised as the Federals by this unexpected encounter. Fighting instincts took over on both sides, and the Federal and Confederate soldiers triggered murderous volleys into each other's faces. The range was point-blank, and the slaughter was terrible. Captain Mons Grinegar of the 15th Wisconsin reported they, quote, received a heavy volley from the enemy's line. We held our position for some minutes, 
and fired six or seven rounds when we were ordered back ten or fifteen paces. As Head quickly discovered, his brigade front was too short for the numbers opposing him. Fulton's and Gregg's Confederate brigades overlapped Hegg's line on both flanks and had artillery support close at hand. Hegg's Federals slowly gave ground, edging back westward toward the Lafayette Road. Hegg called up the men of the 25th Illinois into the front line to bolster his ranks and also appealed to Davis for more help. Meanwhile, Haig's fellow brigade commander, William Carlin, had been listening to the increasing intensity of the combat off to his left in the woods with growing frustration. Davis's meddling had left Carlin in direct command of only two regiments at Vineyard Field, and now Davis seemed to have forgotten about them, even as Haig was obviously in trouble. The 33-year-old Carlin was regular army, a West Pointer who had already seen a decade of hard service on the frontier when war arrived in 1861. He had never got along particularly well with Davis, and that attitude had hardened into intense dislike after Stones River. After that battle, Carlin believed that Davis's official report had unfairly slighted him and his brigade, and so from that time on, William Carlin had harbored a deep grudge against Jefferson C. Davis. Here at Chickamauga, Carlin waited impatiently for Davis to order him into action. By now, Vineyard Field, there along the Lafayette Road, was a beehive of Union activity. However, what that activity lacked was a single organizing hand. About 200 yards behind Carlin, four regiments of Wilder's Lightning Brigade with their Spencer repeating rifles, were deployed on a slight rise at the western edge of Vineyard Field. They were supported by Captain Eli Lilly's 18th Indiana Battery. Wilder's troops represented a powerful backstop to any federal force in the vicinity, but unlike those other nearby units, Wilder was acting independently and took his orders directly from Rosecrans. Also nearby was another brigade, this one commanded by Colonel Sidney Barnes. Barnes was still wondering where Horatio Van Cleve, his divisional commander, could be found. Left behind when the division was sent north, Barnes had finally been relieved by other troops and was trying to rejoin the rest of Van Cleve's command, which just then was engaged with Stuart's Confederates east of Brotherton Field. Carlin was aware of the presence of Wilder and Barnes nearby, but didn't pay them much attention. He instead was focused on the fact Haig was in trouble. Finally, Carlin received orders from Davis telling him to enter the fight. With the 38th Illinois on the left and the 101st Ohio on the right, Carlin led his men into action. If Bushrod Johnson's rebels had been alone in the woods, Carlin's advance might have taken him in the flank and unraveled Johnson's line in repetition of the flanking attacks that had thus far characterized much of the day's fighting. Johnson, however, was not alone. Behind him was a veteran division from the Army of Northern Virginia. This was Hood's own division, here led by Evander Law. Hood, bumped up to Corps Command here at Chickamauga, was a fighter, and by this time he had grown tired of waiting all day to advance. 
Now, with Bushrod Johnson's men already engaged with the enemy, Hood ordered his entire command into action. Hey there, I'm Dylan Lewis, one of the hosts of Motley Fool Money. Each weekday on Motley Fool Money, we talk through the business news you need to know and the stories moving stocks on Wall Street. On weekends, we dive into the industries shaping tomorrow and host the experts, authors, and executives that understand them. Tune in for insights, a long-term perspective on investing, and of course, stock ideas, plenty of them. To quote a listener, it pays to listen. Check us out and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. John B. Hood was only commanding a cobbled-together corps here on the 19th because James Longstreet hadn't yet arrived on the battlefield from Virginia. With Longstreet absent, Braxton Bragg had Hood commanding three brigades of his own division, temporarily under Evander Law's command, as we mentioned a moment ago, as well as Bushrod Johnson's provisional division of three brigades. And by the by, but besides Longstreet himself, Major General Lafayette McClaw's division was also on the way from Virginia, but neither Old Pete nor McClaw's troops would arrive in time to participate in the fighting here on the second day of the battle. Hood had initially positioned Evander Laws and Bushrod Johnson's two divisions, one behind the other, with Johnson up front and Law behind him. Each division deployed with two brigades forward and one in reserve. As we've already noted, Johnson's divisional front was bearing the brunt of the assault by Haig's brigade of Federals. When Bushrod Johnson received Hood's orders to go over to the attack, the advance by a large portion of his division went astray as they marched off to the northwest. This was Fulton's brigade, McNair's brigade, and two regiments of Gregg's brigade. Meanwhile, the rest of Gregg's brigade drove straight west, pushing Haig's Yankees back toward the Lafayette Road. A large portion of Johnson's division going astray and splitting apart was problem enough, but an additional complication developed as Law's division started forward. Colonel James Sheffield's Alabama Brigade, on Law's right, veered off to the north, guiding on the sound of the fighting along the Brotherton Road. And so, just as Bushrod Johnson's division had split apart, Evander Law's now fragmented as well, as Sheffield veered off to the north, and Law's other two brigades, 
Brigadier General Jerome Robertson's Brigade of Texans and Arkansans, and Brigadier General Henry Rock Benning's Georgia Brigade, both advanced to the southwest, where Robertson's men ran into Carlin's Federals as those Yankees moved up to aid Haig. Well, needless to say, this fracturing of both Johnson's division and Law's division dissipated the striking power of Hood's corps. While Haig's and Carlin's brigades were waging their unequal battle against Hood's Confederates east of the Lafayette Road, even more Federal troops were moving up that road behind them. About 3 p.m., Brigadier General Thomas Wood's 21st Corps Division arrived in the Vineyard Field area from Lee and Gordon's Mills. Just a few days away from his 40th birthday, Tom Wood was one of the Army of the Cumberland's more experienced divisional commanders having led his current command at Shiloh, Perryville, and Stones River. At Stones River, Wood's division had fought with grim tenacity, and he won no small degree of distinction for his performance there. By any measure, he was a solid officer. Here at Chickamauga, like Jefferson C. Davis's division, Wood's command was smaller than normal. One of his brigades had been left to garrison Chattanooga, leaving Wood short one-third of his division. Since Davis was also short a brigade, this left he and Wood with only four federal brigades in the vicinity of Vineyard Field to contend with a much larger number of rebels. That meant the action here promised to be a hard fight for the Yankees. Wood's two brigades represented the last of Crittenden's 21st Corps troops to enter the battle. As y'all will recall, Palmer's division was already engaged up in Brock Field under George Thomas's direction, while Van Cleve's division, minus one brigade, was facing growing enemy pressure in the Brotherton Field area. Crittenden, Crittenden originally intended to place Wood on Van Cleve's right, extending the line south far enough to connect with Davis, and in that way, keep at least a part of the Corps working together in mutual support. But while Crittenden's plan was commendable, the execution of his idea left something to be desired. Tom Wood later reported that he was, quote, totally ignorant of Van Cleef's position in the battle and met no one in the field to enlighten me. I found myself much disadvantaged for the want of information. Just before four o'clock, Wood halted his men on the Lafayette Road, faced them to the right, and formed them into line of battle, turned toward the sound of the fighting that was raging off to the east in the woods. Colonel Harker's brigade was on the left, while Colonel George Buell's brigade was on the right, in front of the vineyard cabin. There, Wood met Davis, who explained Heg's troubles and the general nature of the fighting thus far. As the two officers talked, one of Hegg's aides rushed up with the alarming news that Hegg's men couldn't hold their position and were falling back. Hardly were the words out of the man's mouth before Davis and Wood saw Federal soldiers pouring out of the woods in complete disorder just north of Harker's left flank. Of that moment, Wood later recalled, quote, It was evident that a crisis was at hand. 
The routed Federals belonged to Haig's left flank regiment, the 35th Illinois. They had been sent running by the advance of the 39th North Carolina and 25th Arkansas from McNair's brigade of Bushrod Johnson's division. The rebels pursued the fleeing Yankees across the Lafayette Road and several hundred yards beyond. When Wood realized what was happening, he turned Charles Harker's brigade to the left and ordered him to drive due north up the Lafayette Road to strike the charging North Carolinians and Arkansans in the flank. However, like nearly everyone else who was trying to make sense of the rapidly changing circumstances, Harker had only the vaguest notions of his exact mission. He later wrote, About this time there was great confusion among the troops which had been engaged, and no one seemed to have any definite idea of our own lines or the position of the enemy. While Generals Wood and Davis were deciding what to do, the situation on Davis's own front was deteriorating rapidly. Hoping to aid Haig, Carlin had gone forward with the two regiments still under his direct command, the 38th Illinois and 101st Ohio, but his advance had been checked by the 3rd Arkansas of Robertson's Brigade. Meanwhile, the rest of Robertson's Brigade, the 1st, 3rd, and 4th Texas, swung around to engage Haig's crumbling line of battle in the woods north of Vineyard Field. This was the second or even third time that Haig's Federals had been driven back. They had already suffered heavy casualties in the earlier fighting, and the appearance now of a fresh and powerful force of Confederates advancing through the timber and brush in their direction sent them reeling backward. Haig's problems were compounded by the collapse of the 35th Illinois on his left, which we mentioned a moment ago. His position was precarious, and Haig was forced to fall back to near the Lafayette Road, where he set about trying to reform his battered command. Meanwhile, a short distance away, Sidney Barnes, commanding the Lost Brigade from Van Cleve's division, had thus far maintained his position at the southern end of Vineyard Field. However, now, with combat raging all around him, he decided this was the perfect moment to enter the fighting. His four regiments of Kentucky, Indiana, and Ohio troops advanced in textbook formation, angling northeast across the field toward where Barnes assumed the rebel flank was located. Unfortunately, as Barnes' advance swept forward across the field, it exposed his own right flank to Colonel Robert Triggs' Floridians and Virginians. You see, Triggs' brigade, from Simon Bolivar Buckner's corps, had just received orders to support Hood's attack and was moving up through the woods toward the open ground at Vineyard Field. Disaster struck Barnes' Federals as Triggs' Confederates reached the edge of the field leveled their muskets, and opened fire. Lieutenant Colonel John Wade, commanding the 54th Virginia, reported that when his men reached the fence at the edge of the field, quote, a volley was fired by the brigade, which drove the enemy from the cleared land in our front. The Federals on the receiving end of that volley also recalled the moment. Captain T.J. Wright of the 8th Kentucky said, quote, 
To our surprise, we were completely flanked on our right by a heavy force who opened an enfilading fire on us. The shock of that devastating enfilading fire shattered Barnes' brigade. As his men scrambled to get away from the deadly rebel musketry, they ran through the lines of Carlin's two regiments, completely disrupting both units. Private James Cole's 101st Ohio lay directly in the path of this stampede, and he was outraged by the rout, writing, quote, The rebels flanked them, and instead of their acting like men, they run like cowards, retreating through our ranks. William Carlin was just as unhappy as Private Cole as he retreated with his suddenly disintegrating command. Within moments, both Carlin's brigade and Barnes' brigade had fallen back to the Lafayette Road, and there officers struggled to restore some order to to disorganized units. And I think that's where we'll leave things for now, with the Federals fighting in and around Vineyard Field, struggling to keep their line from completely collapsing as Hood's Confederates roll forward. That means it's time for this episode's book recommendation, and our recommendation this time isn't a book. It's some back issues of a Civil War magazine. Yep, the late, great Blue and Gray magazine did a series of issues back in 2007 and 2008 covering the Battle of Chickamauga. 2008 was the 145th anniversary of the battle. Well, anyway, these issues feature articles by William Glenn Robertson, and the maps, as usual for Blue and Gray, are stellar. So, if you happen to have these back issues, congratulations. If you don't and get a hold of them, you won't regret it. They're great resources. And they are the fall 2007, and then the spring 2008, and the summer 2008 issues of Blue and Gray, covering all three days of the Battle of Chickamauga. Don't forget you can find a complete list of all of our book and magazine recommendations if you head over to the podcast website, which is www.civilwarpodcast.org. Also at the website, you can find information on joining the Strawfoot Brigade over on Patreon and supporting the podcast in that way, just like Alexander T., Patrick, Gregory F., and David B. did recently. We also want to say thank you to Robin R. and William B. for their donations. And then thanks to all of you for listening to this episode of The Civil War. 1861 to 1865, a history podcast. Rich and I do hope that you'll join us again next time. But until then, take care. Thanks, everyone. Bye. Bye.